Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 1st of December 2023. Regular readers and listeners to the Green Edge will know that our usual focus is blighty and its progress hopefully towards a sustainable future. But we're ever happy to venture outside the box and see what's going on in the outside world. So when we were offered the chance a week or two ago to interview the winner of the 2023 Ashton Award for Integrated Energy Africa, it would have been churlish to refuse. The result was not just this week's post, but also an edited video of our conversation with Carolina Ines Pan, Director of Research at Power for All. Michael, a well-deserved winner of the Ashton Award, would you agree? Yes, well, Ashton, uh, about supercharging climate innovation. And in this category, the award winners, which was a project in Uganda, were up against really stiff competition from one in Nigeria, which was also a mini-grid project, a battery project in Kenya, and a Pan-African grid software project. So they're really interesting sets of technologies which are working in challenging environments. And I think whilst it's an African project, I think there are things to learn for us because there are still a lot of people off grid in rural areas in the UK, but also across Europe and in many parts of the world. Well, Michael, as you say there, the idea behind Power for All's approach, which it calls Utilities 2.0, is to set up a solar mini grid in a town or village that was previously electricity less and then to build demand so that when the main grid comes along, it's not sitting idle. So let's hear a clip from our conversation with Carolina Ines Pan talking about how it typically works in Uganda without the Utilities 2.0 approach. One thing that we've observed is that when the utility does grid extension, they just extend their lines, but they don't do anything. They don't work with the customers. They don't knock on their doors and explain to them that they now have access to energy and how to connect and how to do things, et cetera. They, they do nothing. And that's why when you see that there's grid extension, if you look at the number of connections over time, they grow super slowly because people don't connect. Like you can't expect that people that never had access to energy to suddenly know what this is and connect and be interested in and, and start consuming right away. But the mini grid developer does that because it's part of their business model. They need to get everybody connected. So we work locally with the people. So we go, we install the solar assets, uh, the mini grid developer explains to the people what they have, how to connect, try to get everybody connected. And then we work to increase the consumption. And that's when the appliance finance company comes in. Michael, it seems strange in our appliance-filled world to be talking about increasing demand for electricity when we're normally talking about exactly the opposite. Yes, we are talking about two things, probably. One is about reducing energy wastage and therefore energy efficiency. But we're also very interested in cooling at the same time because of our climate changes which are going on. And that's equally relevant in Africa. But there are always things to learn. And the greater the number of people applying creative technologies to make better use of energy supply and its distribution, there is something to be gained everywhere. This is about social benefits as well, isn't it? Let's have another clip from Carolina, this time on some of the social benefits the project has brought to the town of Kiwumu in Uganda. Thanks to this, people now have streetlights, which for them, it's new and they bring 
A lot of benefits. The first is safety. It's so much safer to walk down the street at night because of the street lights. Also, the businesses can operate for longer hours for two reasons. Now, because they have light, but also because of the streetlights and they can get customers in at later times without fear. The kids can stay in school for longer. They can read at night. They can do other stuff. And this was for me one of the nicest results. They opened a movie theater in town. And for these people, it's like the first time they have something like that. And they were attracting people from nearby villages because it used to happen that when people wanted to go out, they would go somewhere else, somewhere electrified, right? So that you can go to a bar with music. But now people are receiving other people in their town. And it's for them, they feel super proud about that. And a reminder that you can find this week's post on Par for All with a link to the video on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your usual podcasts. I think that's how they say it these days. Michael, I hear our friends at the Department for Education are doubling in artificial intelligence now. They are. On the same day, they released three reports. They released one where they did some experimental pilot work using AI to analyze the local skills improvement plans, about 3,000 pages plus worth of documentation, possibly even 4,000. And you could query why they didn't have a proper structured template to start with, but that's another debate. They also released an AI report looking at the impact of AI on work and jobs and its distribution, which sectors, which occupations. And for the third one, they released one about the impact of AI within education, which was a summation of their consultation. So obviously, Department for Education is racing ahead. It's also, if you've noticed, given a grant of about £2 million to the Oak Academy to explore AI within education, within our school system. So slowly but surely, AI is becoming mainstream. I remember talking to a teacher. I was asking him, how do you know when one of your kids has submitted an essay that's been done by ChatGPT? And he said, well, the grammar's too good. (laughs) But I have to say, and this is just my opinion, you have said it there, Michael, if DSE for the LSIPs had set up a proper template for summary reporting in the first place, they might not be needing AI now. But as the old bluesman Robert Johnson said, that's just my opinion. I may be right or wrong. Anyway, staying with DFE, one of the emails we received after last week's post on boot camps was from David Warnes. Now, David is principal at Chelmsford College in Essex, and he told us in the email that the college had put in a bid for the latest round of boot camps, together with a social housing provider, CHP, for a retrofit boot camp but had missed out by just one mark. And David said he'd written to Robert Halfon, the minister responsible for boot camps, about it. Well, we got on a call with David earlier this week, and this is what he told us. Boot camps are a key government priority. They're a flagship programme, and a lot of them are going to be driving the green skills agenda. And there was a specific call from Robert during the AOC conference about colleges stepping up and doing more boot camps, echoed by the FEC and Gillian Keegan and others. And our frustration is that we're trying to do that 
but the process for boot camps, the actual bidding process is just very, very cumbersome, very time consuming. It takes up, I think I mentioned in my email or my letter to Robert, there's 266 pages of guidance that you have to wade through to put a bid together. And then you have to attach lots of annexes around financial records and all the information the government have on colleges anyway through the CFFR process. So it's a lot of duplication. Colleges don't have the resources to employ bid writers and use public funds in that way. So it has to be done on top of the day job, which just makes it very unrealistic for colleges to get into that market. And the rules around once you actually start delivering then are very complicated around how you then draw down funding in terms of the upfront payment, the on-program and what is then weighted as the end payment. So there's a lot of risk involved in terms of putting resources attached to this which you then may not get back in terms of the funding at the end of it. So it would be much better, in my view, if the government want to drive this concept. I like the bootcamp concept. I like the fact that it's a short, sharp intervention linked to an employer, linked to job outcomes. That makes perfect sense. It's stuff we're doing already around the swaps. It's an extended swap with a more of a guaranteed job outcome attached to it. So the whole concept of it is great. But why not just add it into our allocation and why not just make it as a priority along with the free schools for jobs? We've got a separate ring fence allocation for that, for particular programs that are identified and defined by the government. Why not do exactly the same thing for boot camps? Why make us jump all these hurdles? Yes, if you're a new new player wanting to get into the market and this is something you want to get into, then yes, obviously you do need to go through a prudence and a due diligence process to get on the government's list. But for providers that exist, either colleges or even ITPs that already have contracts and due diligence with the government, why not just ring fence an allocation and put that against colleges that want it? Not all colleges will want it. Some will, some won't. But have that there. It's a much, much simpler process. Michael, 266 pages of guidance from the DfE and what sounds like a potentially monumental waste of time. Yes. When you've got contested funding, you've got to devise a process by which you can reject very, very good bids rather than having an absolute standard because the pot of funds available is fixed. I think there'd be a lot of sense to have allocations, particularly around what you could call ubiquitous skills that will be spread across the whole economy around retrofit. I think there's a good argument as well to link the funding for FE with some of the HE funding to do some of the bridging qualifications between level three and therefore focus on level four and five before you get to a degree, because it's in that middle ground where the critical skills will need to be developed that can provide the technical capability to actually deliver on net zero, but also improve on the applications and adapt solutions to the local needs. Well, we had a good chat with David and he said he'll come back to us as and when he gets a response from Robert Half on there. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights 